Well, I am thankful this morning to be part of the uh, series that is on uh, the book of Acts and uh, just all of the um, ways in which we see the grace of God moving um, in the world at that point in time, the different things that are happening. And, and as we take a look at our, our passage this morning, I'm going to t- take a decidedly missions perspective on this passage. And so I'll ask you, if you would please, to turn to Acts chapter 11. Acts chapter 11, I'm, I'm going to read uh, verses 19 through 30, ask you to follow along, and then I'm going to pray. And uh, yeah, just uh, take a look at as you can see in your bulletin, we're going to be talking about the fact that of seeing God's grace. Seeing God's grace, and we're going to look at that by way of two different means, I guess you might say, a little bit of early church history, very early church history, the first decade, and then looking at our own passage uh, this morning from Acts chapter 11. So in Acts chapter 11, beginning in verse 19, Luke writes, For those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen, traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came, and here we go, and saw the grace of God, he was glad. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and and a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians." Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine all over the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea, and they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Father, we praise you this day for your goodness, for your mercy, for your grace. We praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ, who he is and what he has done on our behalf to purchase and to secure our salvation. Father, how we praise you for the ways in which you have moved, as we're going to see um, in Acts today, first in Jerusalem and then in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Father, how we praise you that, uh, that the salvation that Christ offers he offers to everyone and Lord God how we praise you that you are at work saving and adding people daily to your church and father we're just thankful that uh, you have worked in each one of our lives Lord God that we as individual believers have the opportunity to be ambassadors for Christ pleading with people to be reconciled to you And uh, so again, Lord God, how we're thankful for the fact that the things that we're involved in today have eternal significance. Lord God, remind us of the fact that every person that we run into every day is an eternal being. And Lord God, may, may the way that we interact with them 
uh, reveal that we're thinking about that and that's become a part of our lifestyle. So again, Lord God, we're thankful for your word, what we can learn from it, how we can be encouraged by it. And we pray all these things this morning in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we're going to uh, look at, again, as I said, at this passage of Scripture with a decidedly missions perspective. And uh, what I want us to, to, to begin seeing is that we as God's people, we as His children, His church, His bride, uh, we actually get to see the grace of God in action on a regular basis. Uh, and that's what we understand from this passage because, again, as it says in regards to Barnabas, when he came and saw all the Greek believers, he says here that when he came, he saw the grace of God and he was glad. So Barnabas, observing all of these Greek believers, just sort of is rejoicing with a joy that he's overflowing with. And why is he rejoicing? In, and it's because the grace of God that he's seeing amongst, amongst these, all these new Hellenist believers. Now remember, these Hellenist believers, how did Paul describe these people in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 12? This is what Paul had to say about lost Gentiles in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 12. They were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But God, the God of all grace, saved those hopeless people. Amen? Absolutely. And as the Apostle Paul goes on to say in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 13, the very next verse, God's salvation is poured out upon these Gentiles. And what happens? Here's what Paul says in, chapter, in Ephesians 2.13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So this, this aspect of seeing the grace of God, watching God save and gather the lost, bringing them near to him, making them part of his church, folks who had been sheep without a shepherd, people who had been slaves to their sin, people who had been pursuing the things of this world, those same people have now been adopted by God into his family. And they've, and, and they've been incorporated into his church. And this pretty much applies to everybody in the building this morning. We're pretty much, I think everybody here is probably from a Gentile extraction of some way, shape, or form. But God has made us to be saints, and we sing along with the, the eminent Louis Armstrong. Oh, how I want to be in that number. Join me when the saints go marching in. Absolutely. Well, the book of Acts is a phenomenal account of seeing God's grace moving among various people. And you may have heard several guys already, maybe since there's been a series, maybe talk about what they thought the, the key verse or key verses for this book are. Personally, I think it's Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, and I'll review that for you. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus says to his disciples, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. And in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And I think as we read the remainder of the book of Acts, what we're seeing is that this mission statement by Jesus Christ is being fulfilled by his spirit-filled church. And so what I want to start out with today is just kind of a brief history of about maybe the first decade of the church as we kind of review some of the things that we see in regards to the grace of God. So in Acts chapter 2, verse 41, Peter's first sermon, we see that about 3,000 were baptized into the name of Jesus Christ. And then later on, 
In, in Acts chapter 4, when Peter preaches, we also see these words, many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of men came to be about 5,000. Now, obviously, there was a reaction by the religious leaders of the day, and they decided to crack down on the gospel. And then what happens as a result of that? Well, the disciples simply get together and they pray for boldness. And so we read in Acts chapter 4 and verse 31, when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Now, does God answer their prayer? Well, absolutely God does. He is the God of all grace. And in Acts chapter 5, verse 14, we read, The believers were increasingly added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. Later in Acts chapter 5, there's actual persecution taking place. Because the religious leaders had the apostles beaten, and they commanded them not to speak in the name of Jesus. But how did the, the apostles respond? Well, they rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. But, they did, but as it says in Acts chapter 5, verse 40, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Jesus is the Messiah. Well, continuing to move through the book of Acts, Acts chapter 6, verse 7 says this. The word of God continued to increase and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great number of the priests became obedient to the faith. So here we see God's grace constantly being on display in Jerusalem. Well, now we're going to move on to Acts chapter 8. So here we see, again, remember Jesus said, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem. And we've seen that happen in the first seven chapters. Now, after Stephen's defense before the council, resulting, of course, in his being martyred, Luke writes in Acts chapter 8 and verse 1, there arose a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Now, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. And so now we see the stage is kind of turning from, from the gospel and the grace of God in Jerusalem to watching the gospel move beyond Jerusalem into Judea and Samaria. And so again, later in, in Acts, uh, 8 chapter, uh, Acts chapter 8 verse 12, we read that both men and women were, who believed the word of the Lord and they were being baptized as Philip preached the kingdom of God to them in the name of Jesus Christ. Then... Of course, in an amazing miracle, God directs Philip to a desert road where he finds an Ethiopian official reading from the prophet Isaiah. And after Philip explains how this passage from Isaiah chapter 53 speaks of Jesus Christ, this official from the court of Candace, who is the queen of Ethiopia, professes faith in Christ and he is baptized. And afterward, Philip's traveled. Afterward, after this, Philip travels kind of northward through Judea along the coast, preaching all along, it says, the coast until he reaches the city of Caesarea, which is a Roman stronghold. So in chapters, so in chapters 1 through 8, we're seeing a partial fulfillment of Jesus' words in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. We've seen God's grace moving in Jerusalem and then in Samaria among a people of mixed race, then with a Jewish proselyte, and then bringing the gospel to the Jews throughout Judea. And so even when God saves, the, uh, saves Saul the Pharisee, his first ministry is to the Jews that are in Damascus. That's what we read in Acts chapter 9 verses 20 to 22. And so concluding this portion of very early church history, we read in Acts chapter 9, verse 31. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. 
and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. And so again, we're seeing God continues to display his grace, his saving grace in Judea and Samaria. Now, at this point in time, we're probably about eight years out from the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're, I think we're beginning to see the very early stages of the followers of Christ taking the gospel to the end of the earth in fulfillment of that command from Jesus. And this fulfillment, I think, is seen by the fact that God's spirit is now being poured out upon the Gentiles. So in Acts chapter 10, we notice that the uh, outreach of the church now moves on to the Gentiles. The Roman centurion uh, Cornelius gathers his extended family and friends, close friends. And as the Peter is preaching, they're all baptized in the Holy Spirit of God, coming to saving faith in Christ, and are subsequently baptized by immersion. And this is such an astonishing development that those Jews who accompanied Peter had this to say. It says, they were amazed because the Holy Spirit was poured out on even the Gentiles. And then after Peter, of course, is challenged by some Jews in Jerusalem about even associating with Gentiles and taking the gospel to them. And after Peter, Peter tells the story of God himself moving him to go to Cornelius. Uh, and even, even these men of the circumcision party, it says in Acts chapter 11. In fact, the verse right uh, beginning uh, where it leaves off right before we start today. It says, when they heard these things, they fell silent. They glorified God saying, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. And so I think that all this history of seeing God's grace at work in Jerusalem and Judea, Samaria, and now the beginnings of, God's, uh, of the gospel of God and the grace of God being extended out to the Gentiles, we see, the, we see this aspect, I believe, of pioneer church planting among the Gentiles. That's why I say it's kind of a decidedly missions perspective this morning. Now, now why would I say that, that, I, that, that I would see here the beginnings of pioneer church planting? Well... This is a, a, what we're going to see in our passage today, taking the gospel to Antioch. It says just a couple of chapters later in, 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 in Acts chapter 13 and verse 1, it says, now there were in the church at Antioch. And so I, th- I think that the things that we're seeing today in our passage leads to the planting of a church. Now, at Two Every Tribe, our methodology for church pioneer, pioneer church planting employs eight phases. And I'm going to ask the folks uh, back there at the AV if they could bring that slide up. Ah, there we go. So this is, this is our modus operandi, so to speak. When we send out missionaries uh, into a pioneer situation, there's arrival, there's trust. And spiritual, it means there are spiritual conversations that are taking place after that. Moving on to gospel conversations. People coming to faith in Christ then need to be nurtured. Those who come to faith in Christ and are nurtured in in their faith may run into some opposition and some persecution. So we need to help them. But also, as God is gathering together people uh, into a local fellowship, we need, it's our responsibility to discover their giftedness, to work with them by the Spirit of God, to discover their giftedness, and then to affirm that giftedness and place them into positions of service within the church. And that's kind of what we saw in that, uh, that video uh, just earlier this morning. Uh, again, the fact that, that, that they were praying for and waiting upon God to move upon the indigenous people. 
again, and just to recognize the giftedness and the leadership that, that, God, had get, that God had given and use that in the establishment of the church. So what I'd like to do is I'd like to walk through just this passage and see how, how, we, how we can see some of these aspects of this, this pioneering uh, uh, church planting methodology using these eight phases of pioneer church planting. Well, the first one, obviously, is arrival. If you're going to get to a mission field, you've got to arrive there. And so we see here in Acts, in, in, in Acts chapter 11, verse 19, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Antioch and Cyprus and Antioch. And so here you have believers uh, arriving in a city that is 300 miles north of Jerusalem. And when they get there, notice that it says, They began by speaking the word to no one except Jews. Now whenever believers arrive at a new place... We need to arrive in such a way as we are communi- in, in such a way that we are communicating to that local population that we are there for the duration. We are there for the long haul. That our love and our care and our concern for them and our desire to preach the gospel to them and see them come to a, uh, eternal salvation in Christ is something that, that we are committed to. And we will take whatever time is necessary to demonstrate our love and our care for them. So obviously the first thing you have is people simply arriving on the field. The next thing you have is building trust. Now when we talk about building trust, it means that we're going to engage with that local population in a way that we serve them in a meaningful way, something that they see as significant, something that they recognize as being very helpful to them. Something that shows our sincere desire to work for their welfare. And therefore, it's going to establish a level of trust between us and between them. And so here we see that we have gentlemen, we, got, we have people from Cyprus and Cyrene. Men, I think, who are obviously accustomed to interacting with, gen- with Gentiles living in that Greek culture that they grew up in, in Cyprus and Cyrene. And so the social contacts that they have with these Gentiles in Antioch is not a new experience for them. I believe that they already know how to communicate to these people, and I believe that they already know in some senses how it is that they can express a sincere love and care for these people. Now, I want to give you maybe just a couple of, couple of um, practical aspects, some things that we've seen happen uh, just in our own ministry. Uh, the church that you saw earlier, and forgive me if Steve Lustin may have mentioned this already, but when Steve first got in touch with the Ojibwe people up in the Cat Lake area uh, several years ago, um, he had the opportunity, it took some time, <laughs> you got to work through all the, all the chain of command, so to speak, and, um, but he was actually able to meet with some of the tribal leaders. And when he met with them, uh, one of the questions that he asked was, what is one of your biggest concerns? What is it that essentially keeps you awake at night? Their response was this, our young people are not learning the language. And we want our young people to learn, to learn our language from our elders. So Steve said, you know what? We love Jesus and we love you. Let me go back to talk to my team and we'll see what we can do about this. Well, given the day and age in which we lived in, what do you think they did? They developed an app. <laughs> they developed an app. And so now all these young people can look at a picture on their app and the Ojibwe word for whatever that picture is, is pronounced by a tribal elder. 
And so here they have an, a very effective, practical means by which they can teach the Ojibwe language to the Ojibwe youth. And because of that, the elders, the tribal elders, then invited to every tribe, those two families that you saw, they invited them to come and build uh, basically a, a duplex and come and live there on a permanent basis. And that's what you need. You really have to have an invitation from those folks to do it. But because they had shown their love and care, because they had established that level of trust, they were able to actually move and live on that reservation. Well, even more recently than that, we sent out a team of... Um, we call them first-termers, those who are in our two-year training program. We, we say that is your first term of your missionary services to, to get that two years of training. And one of the things that they do is obviously not only learning in the classroom, but very practical aspects of learning. And so they just returned recently from three weeks of being on an island in Alaska. And on that island, there were about 1,200 people total, and probably two-thirds of those are members of the Clinket tribe, which is an essentially unreached tribe of people, even within the confines, within the boundaries of these blessed United States. And so again, as they had an opportunity to go there, one of the first things that they did was they conducted a vacation Bible school for the kids. And after they had completed that, after a few days that they had completed that, they again had an opportunity and went and met with some of the tribal elders. And, and this is what one of the elders uh, said to our people. We are poverty-stricken people. And when you are poverty-stricken, the only thing you have is your family. And when you came here and the very first thing you did was reach out to our children... That showed to us that you cared for our families. Now, after three weeks of, them, of our team being there, five couples and a, and a single lady, uh, when they were leaving, the tribal elders actually asked, could you please, please leave somebody here? Well, we can't. <laughs> but we're going to come back. But the invitation is there. And why? Because you built trust. And why? Because you showed these people that you loved them. And I think that's exactly what was going on here in Antioch as these men of Cyprus and Cyrene were reaching out to the Hellenists there and, and just, and just um, displaying the love of God to them in a way that built that trust. Well, from there, notice what we see here now in verse 20. But some of them, it says, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. Now, here we get into the conversations, spiritual conversations, moving into gospel conversations. Now, this spiritual conversations, this involves taking the time to get to know the people that live in that locale. How do they think about God? How do they consider spiritual things. What, what do they think are their religious needs and their religious duties? Just, just how do they process things of eternity, so to speak? How do, how do, they, how do they see the supernatural world? And again, I think that because these men had come from Cyprus and Cyrene, because they had been living in a Greek culture, a Hellenist culture, they were aware of these types of things that the Hellenists believe. And so that they had come to some level of understanding of that through these spiritual conversations. And so again, these men of Cyprus and Cyrene, having experienced living among these Hellenists, understand how they think. 
And this is going to give them opportunity then to move into gospel conversations. But even along these lines, I just, I want to mention something even here real briefly. You know, I had an opportunity just the other day to speak to, uh, to our guy who's heading up our team in Papua New Guinea. And uh, they recently had an opportunity to travel into what he calls the deep bush and uh, visit a people called the Samiri. Probably three to five hundred people living in maybe 10 or 12 different villages. And um, I just, you know, hap- you know, just kind of thinking through this whole process. He's visited them several times. Uh, it takes them a whole day to get to kind of where they live. But he's been there several times, and I just said, well, what is their kind of religious? You know, how do they process God? How do they think about things that are supernatural? He said, yeah, they're, they're a little bit reluctant to talk about that. They don't, they don't say too much about it. But what I've been able to pick up so far is there's a fair amount of animism involved in what they believe. And, but there's also some kind of ancestral worship that's going on as well. And so, again, Alex is taking the time to get to know these people to come to an understanding, again, of how they think about religious matter, religious duties, religious responsibilities, religious needs, in order that he can effectively communicate the gospel to them. Which is what we get into next. After spiritual conversations, you have gospel conversations. So again, in the very end of verse 20, it says, These men were preaching the Lord Jesus, verse 21, and the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. So again, you have spiritual conversations that naturally are going to move into gospel conversation. And and this speaks of the fact, these gospel conversations talks about the fact that, that God himself is going to open up doors for us to share the whole gospel. We're going to take the time to show them how Jesus deals with our guilt, how Jesus deals with our shame, how Jesus overcomes the evil that is in the world. And so we observe here that you have all of, these, all of these Greeks living in this pagan culture with multiple gods and occultic practices. And you can see that in, in um, Acts chapter 17, when Paul was in Athens, he makes, you know, Luke makes the statement that Paul observes that Athens was a city that was full of idols. And then in Acts chapter 19, after the gospel comes to Ephesus, you see this, this opportunity later on in, 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 in the chapter 9, verses 18 through 20, where, where these believers had all these, all these books and all these in regards to their occult and the witchcraft and everything, and how they brought all of those books together. And what did they do with them? They what? Burned them. And so here you have this, this, this pagan culture. And yet it is our responsibility and it's the responsibility of every believer and then we can see it here in these believers in particular that when they come into this culture in Antioch, this Hellenist culture, this Greek culture, this pagan culture, they are preaching the Lord Jesus. They are having these gospel conversations. And so the truth that Paul states in Romans chapter 10 verse 13 where he says, so faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. This truth is now being lived out in Antioch as they're preaching Jesus and many are coming to faith in Christ. So we move on then from the, and and again, remember what Paul had said about these people. They had been separated from Christ. They had been strangers to the covenants of Israel. They were without hope in this world. And now by the salvation, preaching Christ is the only hope of their salvation. Many of these Gentile people are coming to believe. Well, the next thing we run into is nurture. You've got all these new believers, a great number who believed and turned believed, turn to the Lord. 
And so this phase, again, just talks about the fact that when people come to faith in Christ, these new believers need to know what it means to live the Christian life. They need to be instructed. They need to be nurtured in what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And therefore, as you have these Greeks believing in Christ as their Lord and Savior, uh, this news comes to the church leaders in Jerusalem. They understand that these new believers are going to be they're going to need teaching. They're going to need nurturing. And so what do they do? They send Barnabas. And when Barnabas arrives, as we, again, as we've seen already, this report came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. They sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he had come, he saw the grace of God. He was glad. And so here you have the, the, the leaders in the church of, of Jerusalem recognizing the need to disciple these new believers, and they send Barnabas. So again, the salvation that God is pouring out upon the Gentiles here in Antioch is obviously further evidence of the grace of God on display. Now we want to ask ourselves the question, why send Barnabas? Why send Barnabas? Well, if you go back to Acts chapter 4, we see that there was a disciple named Joseph who was a Levite and a native of, would you know it, Cyprus, who sold a field he owned and he brought all the proceeds to the apostles' feet and laid it at their feet in support of the gospel ministry. The apostles recognized the giftedness, the spiritual giftedness that this Joseph had, and so they called him Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. And so they send Barnabas to Antioch and to observe what the Lord is doing and to encourage these new believers. Now, we're going to talk a little bit about this later on because that really gets into, like we said, uh, phases seven and eight. Discovering somebody's spiritual giftedness, affirming that giftedness, and putting them in positions of service within the church. They're not just bystanders. They're not just observers. They're actually involved in the life of the church. Now, how is Barnabas going to nurture these new believers? Again, why Barnabas? Well, I think number one here is, I believe that since uh, Joseph, who's now called Barnabas, is a Levite, he most likely had some fair amount of instruction from the Word of God, so he himself would, a would be able to teach the Word of God to others. Number two, he's a native of Cyprus. So again, he's had a lifetime of experience living among these Hellenist peoples in that Greek culture. And so there's no need for him to acclimate to, this, to some kind of new culture. He's already well aware of it, having been grown up in it. And finally, number three, Barnabas, as it says here in the scriptures, was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. So he's a man who's been equipped by God and equipped by the church in order to carry out successful gospel ministry. Now, we notice the impact that Barnabas had on the church in Antioch. Notice there it says in verse 24, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And what's the result of that? And a great many people were added to the Lord. A great many people were added to the Lord. Now, so again, we're continuing to see the grace of God on display in Antioch. Well, this gets us to the next phase then. Help. For many converts in many places in the world, their coming to faith in Jesus Christ can cause them some pretty severe problems. They could be at odds with their family, their extended family. 
They could be at odds with their culture, with their society. This may cause them to be persecuted and maybe even martyred. Therefore, it is the required role of the missionary and the church as a whole to help people understand how to apply the Bible to difficult circumstances that following Jesus may bring about. So, as it says here, notice what it says, what did Barnabas do? He exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. And I think this this phrase that we see here implies the fact that these people were getting pushback from family or from culture. And they just needed that encouragement to remain faithful to Christ with that steadfast purpose. So again, as we continue on in verses 25 and 26, so uh, I think it, it, it again talks about the fact that, you know, what is going to be necessary in order to nurture these people because you have a large number of people coming to saving faith in Christ and there's going to be a huge need for nurturing and helping these new believers. So, What does Barnabas do? Verses 25 and 26. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. So as we continue in this passage, we see that there's a large number of people coming to faith in Christ. Barnabas recognizes the great need there is for nurturing and helping these people. And he knows that by himself, he cannot accomplish this. Even with his God-given giftedness, even though he is a man, as it says, as we saw before, is a good man full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, yet this is too much for him to do. So he actually leaves Antioch and goes to Tarsus in order that he might find his old buddy Saul. And together they spend an entire year teaching, nurturing, and helping the church in Antioch. And by the way, this, this example that, that we see here of Barnabas, of seeking for somebody else to, to, to partner with him in ministry, that same philosophy you're going to see throughout the remainder of the book of Acts. Because as you'll, as you'll see, Paul reluctantly will do any ministry on his own. He is always looking for other people to help. By the way, do you need other people? Let me quote Bob Newhart. People. People who need people. They're the luckiest people in the world. You saw that episode, you saw that episode too, didn't you? Ah. Well, as a result of their faithful teaching, these Gentile believers who were formerly... Remember, they were formerly separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now they've been brought near by the blood of Christ. And because they have been brought near by the blood of Christ, I believe that they are obviously in the process of becoming like Christ. And as they're in that process of becoming like Christ, Christ. They're, they're, they are new creatures in Christ. The old has passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Their lifestyles are changing drastically. And I think this is, this is recognized by the culture around them. And so I think that's why we see here just that little final sentence there in verse 26. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Notice they're not referred to as Jews. They're not referred to as Hellenists. They are like a third kind of people. They are Christians. 
Well, we move on now to the next phase, which is discovery. And this phase involves seeking the wisdom of the Lord to help believers understand their spiritual gifts and their role in the work of the gospel and in the body of Christ. So as I mentioned before, the apostles obviously had recognized the giftedness of Barnabas. And having recognized that giftedness and gave, actually changed his name to Son of Encouragement, they then affirmed him in his ministry by giving him significant ministry responsibility. And one of those significant ministry responsibilities we're looking at even today, they sent him to Antioch to see what was going on with all these, with these reports of all these Hellenist people coming to faith in Christ. And so as indigenous people are coming to saving faith and growing in their walk with God, it is imperative that we work with them to discover whatever spiritual giftedness God has given to them. And then we provide for them real opportunities to exercise their giftedness in the life of the church. And when people are equipped, are equipped and they are active in the life of the church, that is healthy Christianity. And that's, by the way, simply what we saw in that video earlier this morning. The missionaries who were there patiently prayed for God to do a work amongst them such that it, there came a point in time, having studied the word with Scotty, that Scotty, or Winfred, I take that back, with Winfred, that Winfred actually got on the radio and was talking about this to his fellow Ojibwe people, telling them that it's our responsibility. This is our community. This is our nation. We need to take the ownership of our church. We need to establish something that is, that is, that is, a, that is an Ojibwe church. And that's exactly, I think, what we're seeing here. Finally, number eight, to affirm. What's the spiritual gifting of a disciple has been discovered, it's important that the missionary in the church plant publicly affirms that gifting in front of everyone. When we, there are a number of different um, cultures where the idea of mutual submission uh, and service is simply not accepted. It, again, it's not part of their culture, not part of who they are. And, and, and the idea of a group of people just dedicating themselves to loving and serving one another is just kind of a novel idea. In fact, <laughs> I was talking to, I was talking to uh, the guy in Papua New Guinea this week. And when he visited these people recently, he's, and I just, you know, just trying to find out what's going on and uh, what if some of his concerns are. And he said, there's not a week that goes by that there is not a fight in one of the villages. In fact, he said people will go from just kind of being content with life to I want to kill you, just like that. I said, well, that's a little bit of a challenge for you then, isn't it? Because how do you know that something that you'll say one day is going to offend their religious proclivities? And they might have that attitude towards you. And he said, brother... Don't think that that thought has not crossed my mind. But what do we do in response to that? Gently, sensitively, carefully preach Jesus Christ. Amen? In fact, Steve Leston had a, um, he had a, a conversation with one of the Clinkett leaders while he was there. And um, apparently a big thing in, in their tribe is control. Control must be shared. Nobody must have too much control. 
So when you come in and talk about the fact that God is the very sovereign Lord of the universe, with, who controls everything. So this tribal leader came to Steve and he said, well, do you think God has always planned that you were going to come here and correct my thinking about this? Hmm. <laughs> Yeah, thinking on your feet when your back is to the wall. (laughs) So Steve thought for a second, and he said, I believe that from eternity past, God knew that you and I were going to have this conversation. And he said, the guy thought for a second, he just kind of walked away and humming to himself. But you can't, you can't shy away from the truth, but you need to communicate the truth in a way that gives them time to process the truth. And so even Alex, when he's talking to the Samiri people, you know, he says, they listen, you know, to the gospel. They listen to gospel truth. They listen to what comes out of the Bible. But he says, but they will tell me, right now our minds are closed. We, we simply don't understand what you're telling us. Well, you just got to be patient, amen? Just line upon line, here a little, there a little, precept upon precept, and just patiently teach the truths of God's word. So, so what we see in this passage then is that, that this leading and encouraging giftedness of Barnabas has been affirmed by the church leaders, so they send him to Antioch. Barnabas affirms the teaching and leadership giftedness of Saul, and so he searches for him and brings him to Antioch. And because they proved themselves to be faithful in that year of teaching in Antioch, they're now affirmed and entrusted by the church that is in Antioch to carry a significant sum of money to help the suffering saints in Jerusalem. Well, I think finally as we complete the church planting process, and again, I think we're seeing the the vestiges of that in this passage because again, two chapters down the road, chapter Uh, 13 verse 1 says, now in the church that was at Antioch. So as we complete the church planting process, we must appoint elders, leaders in the church and give them a public affirmation that is needed. And I think, again, this is what has happened in Antioch because when we go to Acts chapter 13 and verse 1, we find that there are now five leaders in the church. It's not just Barnabas and Saul. It's also Simeon and Lucius and Menean. So I think that's what we see in today's passage in regards to these, these phases in pioneer church planting. And how do we apply what we, what we see today from Acts chapter 11? Well, I think the first thing we do is we acknowledge the grace of God that is, that is at work in you as an individual. That is at work in your family, your circle of friends, and, you, and in your church family. And I think that we need to look for ways in which God's grace is on display and we need to rejoice in those things. Remember, when Barnabas came and he saw the grace of God, he was glad. And I think we look at these eight phases and we can ask ourselves, where are they happening in my life? Wherever you are in your neighborhood, your extended family, your workplace, have you, by the way you communicate your love and care, have you arrived well and have you built trust? Are you having spiritual and gospel conversations with unbelievers? I'll give you just a brief example. So I'm in a gym, you know, down in Brownsville, Texas. And uh, 
just defying gravity on a regular basis, by the way. And uh, <laughs> I got a t-shirt that proves it. Anyway, so I, so I go in and I talk to the head trainer. His name's Kevin. And I just kind of tell Kevin, you know, Kevin, I've been diagnosed with Parkinson's disease. Do you have any exercises, things that you might recommend that I would do? And he said, well, you know, let me look into it a little bit and, 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 I, and I'll get back to you. And, and now Kevin is an imposing figure. He's like six foot five and he is fit, 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 fit. <laughs> but he looks at me and he goes, you mind if I ask you a question? I said, no, go ahead. And he goes, yeah, you know, he puts his head down. <laughs> You know, I don't, I don't want to, you know, I, I don't want to offend you. Kevin, ask me whatever you want. Well, you know, I just don't want to, Kevin, just ask me. What, well, you know, Kevin, just ask me. And he says, well, when stuff like this happens, who do you blame? Ooh. So I had to think for a second. And I said, you know, I blame humanity. Because God made a very good creation and by our sin we have ruined it we have damaged it we have brought destruction upon God's creation and so we've brought this upon ourselves well this gets us into talking a little bit later on about Jesus on the cross and why he's there and why he didn't come down that was his big question you know and he, even later on, he even just said, well, you know, I've just been thinking about these things. I said, Kevin, you should think about these things. I said, because coming to the gym, I enjoy it. It's good stuff. This is the body that God has given to me. It's the temple that I have. I need to take care of it. I know I need to lose 40 pounds, but, you know, but I enjoy coming here. This is, I, what you guys are doing here is great. But the Bible says physical discipline is of what? Little profit. But godliness is profitable for all things. And I said, Kevin, you should think about these things because these are the things of eternity. What we're doing here is temporal. It's good, but it's temporal. But what we're talking about now are the things of eternity. And that's what you, what you should focus. So please pray for my follow-up conversation with this guy because I need to have a, another gospel conversation at least. Well, are you nurturing and helping someone in their faith, or do you need to be nurtured and helped? In other words, are you discipling someone, or are you being discipled? And finally, is Grace Church, and I know they are, discovering and affirming the spiritual giftedness of the people that are here. So we need to pray these things, that we're faithful in these eight phases. We need to pray that we're faithful in these things within our own lives, but also pray that our missionaries are faithful in these things as well. Well, let's pray. Father, again, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the grace of God, your grace that is so evident throughout history. Lord God, we praise you for your goodness. And we thank you for what happened in Antioch. We thank you that we, we see there just the initial phases of taking the gospel to the end of the earth. And so, Father, we, we recognize that that's the place that we're in now. Um, you've put us in a position within the history of humanity and the history of the church where it's where we need to be now taking the gospel to the end of the earth. We pray we'd be faithful in these things. Teach us, give us grace, cause us to grow in grace in the, and in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus. And again, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.